Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Ashley Thompson, who is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Minnesota, Duluth. She has published more than 40 academic papers on sexual and romantic relationships, spanning a wide range of topics, including infidelity, consensual non-monogamy, gender, kissing, and more. Today, we're going to be talking about her research on kissing, which seems appropriate with Valentine's Day just around the corner. I thought kissing would also be an interesting topic to explore because while it's usually people's first partnered sexual behavior, at least in Western cultures, and we place this enormous value on the first kiss in a relationship, kissing is actually pretty rarely studied or talked about by sex researchers. So we're going to do a deep dive into the science of kissing. We'll explore why people do it in the first place, the importance of kissing in our sexual and romantic relationships, how much that first kiss really matters what makes a kiss good or bad, as well as how to become a better kisser. This is going to be a really fun conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Ashley, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Dr. Leigh Miller. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. And for those of you who are listening who don't know Ashley or aren't familiar with her work, she is one of my sex research conference buddies. We started hanging out at conferences a few years ago, And we go and we listen to the latest sex research together. And then we grab cocktails afterwards and talk about it. And I really miss that and can't wait till we can do that again. But as a result of our conversations, we've actually become research collaborators. And we just published our first study together, which is on threesomes, which is another pretty understudied topic in the world of sex research. And I talk a bit about what we found in that study in a previous episode of the podcast. So if you haven't heard the one on threesomes yet, be sure to go check it out after this. But to kick off our conversation, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional journey? So how did you become a sex and relationship researcher? Yeah, it's interesting. It all sort of came about in during my college years. It was definitely a time of self-exploration for me. When starting as an undergraduate student, I was interested in going into marine biology. I have a thing for sharks, (laughs) but realized that was difficult to do in the middle of Wisconsin. And so ended up dabbling in some other things, went into business for a while. I'm also really into dance. Uh, I teach tap dance. So went into a dance major for a while and then just ended up taking a psychology course and The rest is history. I fell in love with psychology, started taking every course I could in the area and ended up taking a human sexuality course during my undergraduate career. And my mind was blown. Like, you can tell me I can study sex for the rest of my life. It was a dream come true. And so from there, when applying to graduate programs, I looked for people with similar research interests. And I've been able to sort of carve out a research program of my own through all of these experiences. So sharks, business, dance, and sex. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, pretty eclectic, I'd say. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And it sounds like, you know, we had a pretty similar path too. Like, and I think this is true for a lot of sex researchers, you know, so many people, and this is why I asked this question to all of my guests, they tend to think that, you know, we got into this field because we've kind of always had a lifelong interest in sex and, you know, 
for most of us, it's just kind of like something that we discovered later in life. Like we didn't realize you could actually make a career out of this. So it's kind of serendipity is how a lot of us ended up here. Yeah, absolutely. And I can thank my parents too for growing up in an environment where this wasn't something I was afraid to pursue, right? Sex was something that was openly discussed and it led to me being fascinated and not afraid to explore those interests. I love that. Thank. I'm very thankful for sex positive parents and we certainly could stand to have uh, a few more of those out there. So let's dive into kissing. I know you've done a bit of research on this, but kind of like as a starting point, how common is kissing? Does everybody do it? Is it part of most people's sexual encounters? What does the research say about just sort of the prevalence of kissing? Sure. Yeah. Well, it honestly depends cross-culturally. So I think at least for most of us in Western cultures, we assume that kissing is universal and that everybody engages in kissing. And it's because we see it in all forms of mass media, right? Every movie prioritizes or emphasizes one's first kiss, romantic novels, movies, books, whatever. But when you actually look at the research, kissing isn't prevalent in all cultures. And so for example, there was a study done where they looked at 168 different cultures uh, with respect to their participation in romantic kissing, and only about 46% of those cultures actually engaged in kissing regularly. In fact, there are some kissing or some, some cultures, excuse me, that don't participate in romantic kissing at all. And those have a tendency to be located in um, the Middle East, or sorry, in, in Africa and Central American cultures. But for us in North America and different European cultures, it's fairly common. Um, and some research that I've conducted found that folks typically kiss about 20 different people in their lifetime. And Currently, for those who are in a romantic relationship, they report kissing their partner on average about 15 times per week. So like twice a day is how often most people are kissing their partners on average. Yes. I mean, there's variability with that, but on average. Yeah, there's there's always wide variability whenever we're talking about sexual and romantic behavior. And I'm glad you brought up the cross-cultural piece. I'm familiar with that study as well. And I think that Every time I share it on social media, because I blogged about it a few years ago and occasionally reshare some of the older posts, people are just always really surprised to learn that kissing isn't as universal as they think that it is. You know, as you mentioned, kissing is everywhere in the media and romance novels and, and so forth. But in some cultures, it's just not really present. It doesn't really seem to be part of their sexual and romantic repertoire. So just you know, an important check on some of our assumptions about sexual behavior is that they aren't necessarily cross-cultural universals, but at least in Western cultures, kissing is pretty common. So let's talk about first kisses. When do people usually have their first kiss? And how do they tend to look back on that experience? You know, is it a treasured memory or is it something that makes people cringe a little bit because they didn't feel prepared or it wasn't with the person that they wanted it to be with? What has your research found about that? Sure. Yeah. So at least in my studies, it appears as though people's first kissing or first romantic kissing experience, I should say, it falls right around 15 years of age. And that sort of lines up nicely with what we know about people's sexual debut in other areas. We know that like, with respect to giving and receiving oral sex, with respect to different types of sexual intercourse, the average age usually is somewhere around 15, 16, 17 years, depending on the type of behavior. 
And what we also know about kissing is that it has a tendency to take place prior to those other behaviors. So when we're talking about sexual scripts, right, these ideas about how we progress through different romantic and sexual behaviors, typically we think of kissing as occurring before these more explicit or these more sexual forms of behaviors. I mean, we can all sort of relate to that with the baseball analogy, right? When you talk about first base being the kiss, and then from there, there's genital touching, and then all the way through home base, which would be sexual intercourse. And so this age of sexual debut corresponds nicely with people's age of which they have their first kiss. With regard to people's experiences, by and large, in a study we done where we just asked people to reflect on their kissing memories, people's kissing experiences with regard to that first kiss were overwhelmingly positive. People looked back at those kisses with rose-colored glasses. It was definitely something that most people don't forget, and it brought back these warm and fuzzy feelings. What I found particularly interesting is even if parts of the kiss or the experience weren't all positive, people had a tendency to justify that or rationalize that in some way by saying, well, it was the first kiss. It was supposed to be awkward. And so even if it wasn't entirely positive, we have a way of rationalizing our thoughts to make it seem more positive than it may have been. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I appreciate that you brought up the term sexual debut, because that's the term that tends to be used more often now in the sex research literature to describe, you know, when people start to engage in sexual behaviors, you know, we don't really talk about this idea of losing your virginity anymore. Rather, it's making your debut and you can make a few different debuts in terms of different behaviors. But since you shared, you know, kind of how people tend to feel about those first kisses, if I can ask a semi-personal follow-up question, do you remember what your first kiss was like and sort of what are the emotions or feelings that you have centering around that? And so that I'm not just putting you on the spot here, I'll share a little bit about my own experience. You know, I can distinctly remember my first kiss. Like it's an extremely vivid memory. And I look back on it really positively because the sensations of it, the experience of it was so new and it was really pleasurable and really unlike anything that I had ever done before. And so once I had my first kiss, like I wanted to do it all the time because it was something that was just sort of so new to me. But I think it was also appealing in the sense that it was a big taboo because I grew up in a pretty conservative environment. So doing anything at all, including kissing was, you know, this sort of taboo act. And we know that whenever you're not supposed to do something, it tends to make you want to do it even more. So, you know, at least for me, that's kind of the way I look back on my experience. So is there anything that you'd be willing to share about, you know, what you remember about your first kiss? Yeah, if I could remember, um, (laughs) which seems a little bit ridiculous as a kissing researcher, uh, but I honestly cannot remember any details about my first kiss, which I'm not sure if that's what that what that means. I can tell you about the partner that I had my first kiss with. And I was madly in love with this person before we'd ever even started to talk or get to know each other romantically. So you would think having this really, really strong connection with this person would have enhanced the kiss or would have made it really memorable. But I can't remember any details. But there are other kisses that definitely stick out to me. And I would say the first kiss with my current partner is something that I will always remember. And it was... I think it's because it fit, here I am talking about scripts again, but I think it's because it fit really well with this script that society has sort of 
you know, placed on us. And it was because of sort of the spontaneity. And we have a tendency to associate spontaneity with, you know, positivity. And it was, you know, after a, a date where my partner had dropped me off at my house, I walked in. He came back to pick up an object and ended up kissing me sort of when I wasn't expecting it because he had to come back to get his hat. And so it was sort of fun. It was exciting. I didn't expect it. It sort of took me off guard. And I would say that those are the reasons I definitely remember that kiss over others. Yeah, it's so interesting, you know, that for some people that first kiss just isn't memorable at all. For other people, it's this really positive experience that they look back on. For other people, I know that, you know, it's something they actively try to forget because it was a bad experience for some reason. But at any rate, I just think it's interesting to look back at those first kisses because they're such a formative part of sexual development for so many people. So let's talk a little bit now about why we kiss. What has your research revealed about the primary motivations people have for kissing and do those things differ for different people based on say their gender or personality? Sure. Yeah. So I've conducted a few studies in this area and honestly, I think it was started because of my lack of interest in romantic kissing. I always was with partners who really enjoyed kissing and I never really got the point. And so (laughs) it it led me to ask this question, what is it about kissing? Why are people engaging in behavior? And then once we know why people kiss, what sort of impact does that have on their sexual and relationship satisfaction? And so the first study I conducted in this area, I created a list of over 50 different reasons why people might kiss. And I did this by looking at the literature, looking at motives, sexual behaviors. We also did some focus groups where we sat down and asked people about their kissing experiences. And we generated this list of 50 different reasons. And then when we asked people the extent to which in the past month they had engaged in kissing for those reasons, we were able to sort of compartmentalize those reasons or put them into clusters. And what that analysis yielded was that there was two primary clusters or reasons for kissing, the first of which we coined the sexual and relationship reasons or motives, and the second of which was goal attainment or insecurity motives. So when I'm talking about sexual and relationship motives, what I'm talking about are things related to wanting to express love to a partner, wanting to initiate sexual activity. So some exact motives from this list that we created was I wanted to become aroused. I wanted to express my love for the person. Even something as simple as it's fun fell into this category. Um, The second category, these goal attainment and insecurity motives, they were more related to using kissing as a means. So this included motives like I wanted to enhance my reputation. I felt obligated. I wanted attention. And so overall, people had a tendency to report those sexual and relational motives far more often than the goal attainment and insecurity motives, which is good news because we have a tendency to think of these goal attainment and insecurity motives as a bit maladaptive. They yielded more negative outcomes than these sexual and relationship motives. We would also asked about maybe some variations or differences in motives across different demographic or personality variables. And there were gender differences in people's motives for romantic kissing, with men endorsing a greater variety of motives than women, but particularly these goal attainment and insecurity motives. 
And it was hard for me to sort of understand why we would see that. But I think broadly, it has to do with how men and women are socialized in Western cultures, particularly men and women in these heterosexual relationships are socialized to men to be the initiators, to be the ones who sort of kickstart the different behaviors occurring in relationships, whereas women are sort of the gatekeepers, they're more receptive. And so if men are the ones responsible for kissing, they're likely to kiss for a greater variety of motives than women who are just sort of responding, right? They're responding to the initiation requests of the, the male partner. Um, age was also another variable that impacted these motives, particularly the sexual and relationship motives. Younger folks indicated these motives more than older folks. And this likely has to do with the stage of the relationship people are in. Which, by the way, for some of the studies I've conducted in this area, actually, I should say for most, we were looking at folks who are currently in a romantic relationship. And so if you're thinking about younger folks who are maybe, you know, kickstarting their relationship or they're just starting their relationship, they may be more inclined to use kissing as a means to take their relationship to the next level, to express their love and affection, whereby older individuals maybe aren't as motivated to do that since their relationship is more longstanding. They may not feel the need to, you know, re, um, remind their partner of their love and affection. Uh, lastly, what I think is really interesting is the role extroversion played. Um, and folks who scored high in extroversion were more likely to report all of the different types of motives than those scoring low. And this probably isn't a big surprise because we see extroversion as playing a role in people's um, sexuality and sexual behaviors and motives for sex. Um, because, you know, folks who score high in extroversion are, you know, sensation seekers. They're motivated to form relationships and romantic relationships with others. And so somebody scoring high on extroversion is likely more motivated to kiss because they're more interpersonally motivated and they're high in sensation seeking. They want that rush as compared to people who would be low in extroversion or identified as introverts. Yeah, that's so interesting. <laughs> So there's a lot of different reasons why people might potentially kiss, and it seems to vary a bit from one person to the next. But these are based on people's consciously reported motivations for kissing, right? So you're asking people why they're engaging in this behavior, but sometimes we don't know exactly why we engage in the behaviors that we do sexually and otherwise, because there might be other factors that are influencing them. So I wanted to also ask, are there any potential reasons beyond the reasons you previously mentioned that might motivate people to kiss? So for example, might there be evolutionary reasons why we evolved to kiss in the first place? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, that was sort of, I would say that evolutionary type studies or studies that sort of examine this evolutionary explanation were the studies that predominated the literature, right? So before I really started getting interested in assessing kissing, that's what you saw a lot was looking at why we kiss or the purpose of kissing from an evolutionary perspective. And it's argued that kissing can sort of serve as this mate assessment tool and so if you were to ask an evolutionary psychologist, they've done research to suggest that people's impression of a kissing partner can change dramatically after a first kiss. So kissing can serve as a means by which to locate or identify people who might be good sexual or romantic partners. And so that wouldn't be something that we would necessarily have direct insight to, right? Like you mentioned, it could be something more implicit. 
Uh, and then the same can be true for the reasons why we continue to kiss. So there's some research to suggest that men place more emphasis on kissing prior to engaging in sexual relationships or sexual behaviors, whereas women place more emphasis on the kissing afterward. And it's been argued that there are these different evolutionary pressures for men versus women, and that this emphasis on kissing after engaging in sex might be more beneficial for women looking to retain a mate or looking to keep their mate around with regard to raising children or offspring. Yeah, that's really interesting. And there are a couple of other pieces I can add to that based on some other research I've seen. So there's some work finding that when women are ovulating, so when they're at their most fertile phase, that they rate kissing as being even more important to them, which fits in with that idea that kissing might be this mate selection tool that kind of helps us to size up a partner. And maybe it's related to exchange of chemo signals that happen when you're literally up close and smelling and tasting another person. But another theory evolutionarily that might help to explain kissing is that we know that when people kiss, they're exchanging a massive amount of bacteria. In fact, in one study that I saw, there are as many as 80 million different bacteria that are exchanged in a single kiss. And I know that saying that, like, it's going to gross a lot of people out. And, you know, when we're thinking about <laughs> Valentine's Day and they're like, oh yeah, that, that one kiss had 80 million bacteria, gross. <laughs> but from the evolutionary perspective, that might actually be a good thing because the more that couples kiss, the more similar the bacterial composition of their mouths become. And this could actually potentially be to the benefit of their health. So one school of thought there is that if kissing occurs before pregnancy, it increases the chances of certain infections, such as the human cytomegalovirus, or HCMV for short. Uh, it increases the odds of infections like that taking place at a time when they're unlikely to cause problems. Because when HCMV is contracted during pregnancy, it can actually be detrimental to the health of the fetus. So one evolutionary theory of kissing is that perhaps we kiss as a way of controlling exposure to certain infections that could potentially negatively impact reproductive health. So, you know, there's certainly more research and testing that would need to happen before we can say that, you know, oh yeah, that's definitively why we kiss or something like that. But all of this is just to say that kissing is complex. It's driven by a lot of different factors and there might be some evolutionary or implicit factors that drive us to kiss that we're just not consciously aware of. So we have a lot more to discuss about the science of kissing, including how much first kisses with a romantic partner really matter, how to become a better kisser, and a lot more. And we're going to get into that after a short break from our sponsor. This episode of the Sex and Psychology podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men increase their sexual stamina. It has target zone technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. When used as directed, it won't transfer to your partner. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and is recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent's other sexual wellness products include their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over 
Also, all orders come in discrete, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Ashley Thompson, and we're talking about the science of kissing. So, Ashley, how important is kissing and what are the benefits of it? So, for example, are people who kiss more often more satisfied in their sex lives and relationships? Yeah, so it appears as though, and again, this might vary cross-culturally, but that kissing, particularly for folks in Western cultures, has a great deal of importance linked to it. Um, Just a fun little fact uh, related to a question we asked participants in one of my most recent studies uh, related to the importance. So what we did is we asked participants whether they would be more interested in forever giving up romantic kissing or oral sex. And it was almost split down the middle where half of participants indicated that they were more interested in forever giving up oral sex where the other half indicated kissing. And so clearly kissing has a great deal of importance placed on it, similar to other sexual behaviors. And it's also been reported as being important because they're so memorable. And that relates to some of the stuff we've already discussed in this podcast, but also some things that I think we'll be discussing further later in that these kissing memories we have are very, very detailed and they come with a lot of emotional links as well. But with regard to the importance that they play in romantic relationships, my research indicates that not only does the amount we kiss have implications for our relationships, but the reasons with which why we kiss. And so in a study of mine linking kissing motives to relationships, I found that folks who kiss for these sexual and relationship motives to a greater extent reported greater relationship satisfaction than those who didn't. And this was particularly true for folks who were insecurely attached. So what I mean by that are these people who require extreme closeness from their partner or these folks who have sort of a fear of abandonment. For these anxiously or securely attached individuals, there really seems to be this bolstering effect of kissing for sexual and relationship motives, whereby the more they kiss for these reasons, the better their relationship was. Yeah. So it sounds like it's sort of both the quantity and quality of kisses that matter with the quality kind of being driven by, you know, what are people's motivations for kissing in the first place? Does that sound fair? Yes, absolutely. So when you looked at individuals who may have kissed a lot, but not necessarily for these, what I would call adaptive motives, we didn't see the same impact on relationship satisfaction than we did people who were kissing for these adaptive motives. So kiss early and often, but do it for the right reasons is what I'm taking away from that. (laughs) I love that. If you had to sum it up, that sums it up perfectly. So let me ask you this next. Does the first kiss in a relationship matter as much as we think it does? You know, you mentioned some of the popular media depictions of kissing earlier. And in a lot of those movies and TV shows and romance novels, you know, that first kiss is really a make or break moment. So when it comes to a new partner, how important is that first kiss in a relationship for sort of setting the tone for for the relationship or whether or not the relationship even takes off? Yeah, I think that's sort of a tough question to answer because it seems to vary across people, but Overall, I would say that kissing, based on some of the qualitative work we've done where we've asked folks about their experience, kissing seems to be incredibly important, particularly that first kiss. 
And so in this qualitative work we've done where we've asked people about their first kiss, people have mentioned when asked about that first kiss, it had a dramatic impact on their relationship moving forward. And so it seems to be a make or break in, for some folks. But like I mentioned earlier, people have a tendency to engage in rationalization if it didn't meet their standards. So what I would argue is that if people already sort of have a connection with their the person they had their first kiss with, or they're motivated to continue a relationship with this person, it might not be the end-all be-all. In fact, people might engage in these different strategies to rationalize less than ideal kisses in order to stay with that or to, in order to continue pursuing this relationship. Like I mentioned, we had some folks who indicated that the first kiss wasn't so great, but hey, isn't it supposed to be awkward? It's the first kiss. <laughs> so this is actually giving me an idea. This should be our next collaboration we do together is how are destiny and growth beliefs in relationships linked to that importance people put on the first kiss, right? So if you're somebody who very much believes in that idea of destiny and that there's this perfect soulmate out there for you and that once you meet them like everything is just going to be great and amazing i would imagine or hypothesize that for somebody with strong destiny beliefs that if that first kiss isn't good they're going to take that as an early warning sign to get out and get out now whereas somebody who has more of a growth mindset where they see relationships as something that you need to work on in order to turn your relationship into what it is that you want it to be they might be more willing to give it a second try or maybe to work with their partner on kissing technique and feedback and so forth because you can learn to be a better kisser, right? So maybe they're willing to work on and invest in that. Has there been any research looking at destiny and growth beliefs in kissing? Not to my knowledge. And I am a huge fan of implicit theories of relationships and destiny and growth beliefs. So I'm with you. I think this needs to be our next collaboration. <laughs> I love it. So see, we're, we're getting ideas, even not going to the sex research conferences together. So, <laughs> and there you have it, you know, podcasts can, you know, be the source of, of new relationship studies. So since we're talking about people's memories of kisses, you've also done some work looking at people's recollections of their best kiss ever and their worst kiss ever. So I think people would be really interested in hearing more about what makes a kiss good and what makes a kiss bad? So what did you find there? Yeah, totally. So this study was sort of spurred by a collaborator of mine in uh, Eastern Canada. She actually was my PhD advisor, and now we work a lot together. And she proposed the idea to me, and I loved it. It's such a fun, lighthearted study, just looking at people's recollection of kissing at a time where there's not a lot of literature on the topic. And so when we just asked people to describe their best and their worst kisses, there seemed to be four different themes that emerged related to what stuck out for them or what made the kiss bad or good. Uh, the first theme was all related to the physical components of the kiss. So people would report that the kiss may have been bad because there was too much saliva or, frankly, not enough saliva or that there was issues with the person, the way they tasted or their breath or how much pressure they put, how their lips were pursed, their technique. So that was the most common theme. These physical components of the kiss seem to be very important in determining what's good and bad. The second theme was connection. So the connection you had with the person prior to the kiss. 
So this would be things like, you know, if you already had this emotional attachment or this emotional relationship with the person that could bolster the kiss, that could make the kiss better. Or if you didn't have that great of a relationship with this person, but kissed anyway, it could actually make the kiss worse. A lot of it had to do with who they were kissing and the emotional connection they had. Now, the third theme is my little quote, and that deals with context. So another thing that seemed to make kisses good or bad is when, where, the social context with which it occurred. So the quote was, we had our first kiss laying in his bed right as it hit midnight on my birthday. And so there was something about it happening when it did that made that kiss so memorable or so good. And then the last component for what made a kiss good or bad was emotions. So whether it made them feel guilt after they did it, whether they experienced sexual arousal for the first time as a result of their kiss. So it seems as though there's a, a, a bit of a concoction of reasons what, why what would make a kiss good or bad, all related to physical components, connection, context, and emotions. Yeah, so there's a lot that goes into a kiss. And I loved reading that study and looking at people's descriptions of, you know, how they remembered their best kiss and their worst kiss and how they described it. And I just wanted to share a few other descriptions that I pulled out of your study that I thought were were fun to talk about. So these are descriptions of people's worst kisses ever. So one participant said, the worst was when he just finished eating garlic bread and then practically cleaned out my mouth with his tongue. Growth. <laughs> that that does sound bad. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, maybe don't eat the unlimited garlic breadsticks at the Olive Garden before having your first kiss. <laughs> Another participant said he had a tongue that felt like the size of a baseball. Every time he kissed me, his tongue would fill my mouth and almost go down my throat. It was wet and disgusting. Um, so yeah, I mean, these examples here speak to those physical qualities of the kiss. And if I'm remembering the research correctly, the worst kisses often tended to emphasize those, you know, really unpleasant, undesirable, or gross or disgusting physical elements. So just a couple of examples there that people can connect with. And if you want to share with us your best and worst kisses after the podcast, please do send them to us on social media because I'd love to hear more about your experiences in terms of what makes kisses good or bad. So something else that you also addressed in this study was the topic of forbidden kisses, right? So kisses that happen in secret when you're not supposed to have them, such as kissing somebody who is off limits, like your friend's ex-partner or somebody who is a coworker and, you know, you're discouraged from having relationships with coworkers. So how do people look back on those forbidden kisses? Does the taboo element make it more exciting or is there something else going on there? Yeah, just to preface too, based on some of the little quotes you read, let me tell you, this was one of the most fun cities I was on and going through some of those those quotes or descriptions of kisses, it was tough to pick just a few to toss into the paper. So I'm happy if anyone's interested to provide more information because there was some really fun quotes and experiences people shared with us. But with respect to forbidden kisses, I would say overall, forbidden kisses weren't necessarily um, thought of more positively because of this excitement factor. That was definitely a component that I'll get to later. But I would say by and large, forbidden kisses were not all that well received 
In fact, when looking at the most common emotions that people reported when describing this forbidden kiss, it was regret. So for the most part, people looked back on these kisses sort of negatively with regret or guilt. That said, there were a substantial or a non-ignorable number of people who had positive experiences stemming from these forbidden kisses. And that, like you sort of mentioned, had to do with the thrill of doing something forbidden. So here's a quote from a participant in our study who said, I guess it would be when I kissed my best friend's girlfriend. That's the closest I've come to regretting a kiss, though, to be honest, it was really fun. So there seems to be some negative memories elicited by these, but you're right. There were plenty of people who reported this, you know, taboo, this forbiddenness created some excitement and some thrill. Yeah. And that actually fits really well with some of the research that I've done on secret romantic relationships, the relationships that people try to hide from other people. And when I started studying secret relationships, this was actually the topic of my doctoral dissertation, there wasn't a lot of work out there. And the limited work that did exist seemed to suggest that secret relationships were more exciting, right? And that sneaking around adds to the sort of arousal factor to it. But what I found was that that's actually not the case. And that, especially in the context of an ongoing relationship, you know, hiding something or doing something that you have to maintain as a secret tends to be stressful. And that more often than not, it's linked to negative experiences rather than positive experiences. And, you know, I think, you know, my work is a little bit different in the sense that I was looking at ongoing relationships and you're looking here at just maybe just a kiss where there wasn't necessarily more to it than that. But, you know, it, it, it speaks to this idea that just because you're doing something that is forbidden or secret doesn't necessarily always make it more arousing. Now, I know that when I talked about my first kiss earlier, that it was kind of like this taboo thing and then, you know, that kind of made it more exciting. And so, you know, sometimes that does happen, but there are lots of other contextual factors that can influence, you know, how those things are perceived. Totally. I think it's safe to say, too, that it's never really black and white. So when reading people's quotes or their experiences with these forbidden kisses, it seemed to be a bit of a mixture, right? Even in the quote I just read, they talked about how, you know, it, they kind of regretted it, but that was actually quite fun. So I don't think it's necessarily as simple as it being only exciting or only, you know, guilt producing. I think there's a bit of a mixture there, which makes it hard to conceptualize. Yeah. And I think that that mixture of emotions is actually really common when people are looking back on previous kissing and other sexual experiences. I've seen this a lot in the casual sex literature where when people are asked to reflect on, say, a one night stand or another casual encounter that they've had, there's often a mix of both positive and negative emotions. And if I'm remembering it correctly, I think there's a bit more of that ambivalence for women than there is for men, especially in the case of casual sex. This might also be true in the case of kissing, but we know that women are often judged more harshly than men for their sexual behaviors. And so feelings of guilt and shame and regret are often a bit higher or they're more elevated for women than they are for men. And so they might have a bit more of these kind of ambivalent emotions. Does that kind of fit with what you've seen in, in your work as well? 
Yes, absolutely. I would say one of my streams of research is looking at folks' attitudes towards sexuality. And what I find a lot are neutral attitudes, which can be indicative of these ambivalent attitudes. And it's because sex is complex, right? And that fits exactly with what you're saying is it's rarely just one emotion or it's rarely just some simple answer and that there can be a variety of emotions uh, that occur or in response to a given sexual behavior. Yeah. And I think that point you brought up about neutral attitudes or emotions is so important for anybody who's listening to this, who is a researcher or who is trying to interpret research. So when we survey people about their emotions, like how did you feel about say your first kiss and you give them a scale, say ranging from one to seven, where one is very negative and nine is very positive, you know, and then you've got like a midpoint of that scale, which would be four. So does somebody who chooses four, do they really feel neutral, like where they didn't feel anything positive or negative? Or is it that they had a mix of positive and negative emotions? And so separating out a neutral attitude from an ambivalent attitude where you have, you know, multiple complex feelings, it's actually really hard to do with a lot of these scales that are used. And that's actually a fairly big problem in terms of measurement. So I just wanted to highlight that because I think it's an important point that almost nobody ever talks about. You know, what does the midpoint of the scale actually mean? So we're running a little bit short on time, but I do have another really important question for you. So with Valentine's Day around the corner, people might want to know, can you learn to become a better kisser? So I'm curious if there are any tips that people might be able to take away from the research so that their next kiss can be more special or so that the next time they go to start a relationship with someone, if you're not in one currently, that you might be able to up your kissing game a little bit. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I can even just you know, extrapolate on some of the themes that emerged in this recent work on mine and what, what were the best and the worst kisses. And as you noted, Justin, earlier, these physical components to a kiss were something that were regularly brought up when talking about these worst kisses, right? You mentioned having the garlic breath or having like this large tongue going down someone's throat. So it's definitely worthwhile to keep some of those physical components in mind, right? Like bring a breath mint or some gum on a date. Making That was one of the number one physical components that was discussed was their taste and their breath but also how pursed your lips are. And it's tough, to be honest, because there was a variety of responses. Some people liked a poutier, looser kiss, whereas other people wanted sort of this tighter lip lock. Um, so it's tough to say the exact physical components. They shouldn't be ignored. But what I, I also think I would like to bring up here is that we have a tendency to focus on the physical components too much. So they're not ignorable, but I think something that often gets bypassed is things related to the connection with the person or the context with which the kiss occurred. And those were two themes that emerged in this study that I looked at with respect to best and worst kisses. And so some people, if it's if you've been with your partner for a long time and are still looking to improve, or if you're initiating a relationship with a new person, we might sort of gloss over kissing when we're trying to move ahead to sexual behaviors, which we might think that we want to place a greater emphasis on, but I don't think that's necessarily the right approach. And so I think making sure we establish a strong emotional connection with our partner prior to the kiss, or making sure that we're not just 
throwing the kiss away and that we're engaging in this kiss in an environment that's to be remembered, right? This positive, warm, memorable environment are all things that will make a kiss even better. And so don't ignore the connection you have with a partner. Don't ignore the context. Those can be in many cases just as important as those physical components. I think that's all great advice. And I would add just a couple of additional things there. So one would be to watch how much you drink, right? And I'm talking about consumption of alcoholic beverages here because alcohol can dry out your mouth. It can also affect your breath. And if you drink too much, it can lead to sloppier kissing. So moderation, I think, is advisable when it comes to good kissing, but also for good sex in general, because we know that being drunk, being really inebriated can lead to a wide range of temporary sexual difficulties, including difficulties maintaining arousal and and having an orgasm. Another tip for good kissing is to tilt your head appropriately. So if you look at the research on kissing techniques, I've seen some work finding that most people just sort of naturally kind of tilt their head to the right, which can make things more comfortable and, you know, prevent forehead bumping and and maybe less teeth bumping. And gosh, I just have to say like teeth bumping, <laughs> like if you want to talk about undesirable qualities of kissing, like that for me has to be like at the top of the list because like that sound and feeling of teeth running into each other. Oh gosh, I can't do it. <laughs> so it's, probably- it's like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> I know. And, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, that's bad. So be, be mindful of the teeth. And then, you know, the other thing I would say would be to to be responsive to your partner, right? Because as Ashley mentioned, you know, different people find different things appealing or arousing. And, and, and some people like more aggressive, more, more aggressive, more intense kissing. Other people prefer for it to be more slow and tender. And so kind of watch and see what your partner's reactions are and what it is that they seem to like and enjoy and adapt and adjust your behavior uh, accordingly, rather than say, just jumping right into something really uh, intense. Because, you know, if you don't have any prior experience with them, you don't necessarily know what they like, and, and that might be a turnoff. So again, and this is true for sexual behaviors in general, monitor your partner's comfort level. Of course, make sure everything is consensual. But, you know, by paying attention to the signs and being responsive, you can ensure more pleasurable experiences for everyone. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go if they want to learn a little bit more about you or read up on your research or connect with you on social media? Totally. I would say that the best way is to find my website, which is sexualityandrelationshipscience.com. But I also have a Twitter account. My handle is at psych, T-S-Y-C, Ashley. Yeah, so I would say Twitter and my website. Well, thank you again for your time and your valuable insights. I appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on the social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lay Miller. That's L-E-H Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, if you want to learn more about the science of sexual fantasies and desires. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.